Anyway, we're, we're pausing because, um, well, in our uh, look at the book, because uh, Dr. Truman, has, he's gone through the historical uh, analysis part, history of ideas, and then talked about how that came to be part of the culture, expressive individualism. Um, and then in the roughly second half of the book, He's going to talk about more about how that influences culture and society. Um, I thought this was a good... He doesn't really get into himself, culture, and society. Well, a little bit in not the next chapter of the chapter after that, but really till the end of the chapter. But it seemed like a good place to pause and discuss what Scripture has to say about society. Since the name of the... Uh, the name of the study is uh, Scripture, Self, and Society, and we already talked about the self. What I'm going to discuss tonight and isn't going to be terribly profound. It would be pretty basic and foundational, and much of which you probably have heard in one form or bits and pieces or another. But And then I'm going to start very tediously because... Um, Definitions are important, so I'm going to define culture and society. So uh, the study and analysis of culture is enormously complex. So I'm not going to pretend that this is the be-all and end-all definition, but it combines several uh, serious sociological definitions. Culture is the shared beliefs, and not culture are, culture is. The shared beliefs, values, morals, manners, customs, etc., of a particular civilization, nation, ethnic people, or other social group, which are passed down from generation to generation. It it what culture is depends on which size grouping you're talking about. So we can talk about the culture of Louisville, but that's a subset of the culture of Kentucky, which is a subset of the culture of American culture, which is a subset of Western culture, was a subset of human culture. So, and usually the smaller the group, um, the more specific you can get. And we're mainly going to look at American culture, of course. So, matter of fact, just about anything I say tonight about culture, uh, and even when we discuss scriptures, you could uh, consider it referring to American culture, which is a subset of Western culture. A culture is the complete way the members of a social group understand, approach, organize, and express their lives. So just about anything you think we can do, that's part of culture. So religion is, but so is food. Um, where I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, seafood is a big, big part of the culture. One big part of the seafood culture that I don't get into is to take a whole big bunch of Chesapeake Bay blue crabs, steam them, and dump them on your table and pick them. It always seemed like a lot of work for so little effort. I mean, a lot of effort for so little result. That's, a, no, that's, that's why I invented people who can pick crabs. So... Um, but be that as it may, so various regions have various cultures. America is interesting that, of course, we have been a conglomeration of cultures. And even that has gotten to be controversial because cultural appropriation is a thing now. So 
the eating tacos apparently is cultural appropriation. <laughs> anyway, or calling people tacos. Um, a society is a nation or other established and continuing group of interacting people who share a common culture and or form of government. The idea of a nation state itself, this is why this does get complicated and it is simplified. The nation state itself is a 19th century invention. Well, late 18th, uh, 19th century invention. Um, Empires aren't, neither are tribes, neither are ethnicities. They've been around since they've been people. So as a useful simplification, we can understand society is the container and culture is the contents of it. So there's an American society within which we practice American culture. And of course, I'm not even going to get to the idea of subcultures. Uh, We are a Christian subculture. And within that, we're actually a subculture of the subculture because one can really call Anglicanism itself a subculture. And then there's a subculture of the subculture of the subculture because we're not the Church of England, we're not the Episcopal Church, we're the ACNA. So there's distinctions that we adhere to that we uh, are distinct in, some of which are specifically Christian and some of which are just Anglican, the way we do liturgy, which is great, by the way, but doesn't have to be that way. It's just, it's just a really good way to do it, in my opinion. That's why I'm an Anglican. Um, and by the way, I don't actually have a list of questions at the end, so we can be a little more relaxed. So if you want to just you know, jump right in and ask a question or make a comment, haven't gotten the controversial stuff yet, but we are talking about politics and religion, so... You know, anytime you, get, <laughs> anytime you get two people talking about politics and religion, you'll get three points of view, as they say. So let's look at Scripture, the cultural mandate. Where does culture come from anyway? Well, it comes from the way God created humanity. So the cultural mandate is a standard term. I didn't invent it. Um, sometimes it's synonymous with even the theology part gets complicated, or a subset of what are called the creation mandates. I'm not sure about the other ones, but I'm sure about this. So the creation mandates were uh, the, the cultural mandate, uh, replenish the earth and subdue it, uh, express God's dominion. Then there's the work mandate, which I believe is Genesis 2.15. And then I think... That's where he says, you know, God tells Adam, puts him in a garden, puts him there to work and tend it. And then there's the Sabbath mandate, where God rested on the seventh day and he blessed it. And the cultural mandate is repeated to Noah and his family. So since Noah were the regenerators of the human race, God repeats that. He says, in effect, be fruitful and multiply the earth and subdue it. Um, So we are to exercise dominion over the earth, subdue it, develop its latent potential. Um, I, I, I like wilderness. I admit I'm not a nature boy, but when I was younger, I did a lot of hiking in the Rocky Mountains and the desert southwest, 
and and around uh, the eastern shore of Maryland, which is, you know, I wouldn't call it rugged, but I would call it rural and undeveloped in most places. Um, but we weren't meant to just be animals living off the land. That's not what God intended. God intended us to have a culture. Um, and he calls all human beings. I think that's the next slide. Um, right. The cultural mandate was given to all humanity as created in God's image. Uh, male and female created them, and he created them in God's image. To glorify God and to exercise his, that is God's dominion, on the earth by using our God-given endowments and abilities. And so if there had never been a fall, which that would be an interesting uh, counterfactual history. That, that's actually a genre of literature. What would have happened if there hadn't been a fall? Well, there, I think there would have still been a transformation from regular human life to transformed immortal human life. But be that as it may, there would still be culture. So society and culture as we know it are the outflow of God's cultural mandate to mankind. So everything we know, education, art, government, food, languages, everything. Like language. Languages, the division of languages, for example, well, it, it illustrates the uh, third point. There's good and bad to almost every aspect of culture. Um, family and backing up marriage and backing up sexuality are good things, but they can be corrupted too. Um, pornography, sexual abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So in one sense, the manifestation of many languages is a result of judgment at the Tower of Babel, but it also reflects the, the diversity um, of humankind, and there's going to be... I don't know if there's a heavenly language we all have to learn. You know, there may be a Hebrew exam before you get full entrance, and, you know, before that... You have a provisional, I mean, you're going to get in, but, you know, there's provisional entrance to heaven. Uh, I don't know that. Or there, we may all, we all may be telepathic, who knows. Um, so every manifestation of human culture expresses that we're both made in, the, in God's image, as it says in Genesis 1.27, but also corrupted by sin. Um, I've always figured Genesis... 614 is the most tragic verse in all of Scripture. So I'm going to go ahead and read that. Um, the Nephilim were on earth in those days. No, that's 64. So, up oh, is that? No, I think it's... Is it 4? No, it's 5. So that's a typo. Um, Genesis 6... Um, 614 yep I don't know what I was thinking that should be Genesis 6 5 uh, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time and then verse 6 the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain 
And this is one of the more controversial verses in Scripture. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, etc., etc., for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. So man was so wicked that it grieved God that he had ever created us. That's, that's some serious stuff there. But what we're talking about is the fact that um, in chapter 9, I'll, I'll just flip over and read that real quick again. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Um, and he repeats that to, you know, mankind too, um, where the, where the, uh, not the upgrade, but just the next version. The Christ and culture. For those of you who know your theology, I'm not really talking about going to talk about H. Your theological books, H. Richard Niebuhr's well known, and, and and it's still a pretty good book. Uh, it's called Christ and Culture. Um, he had five paradigms for understanding uh, the relationship of Christ to culture, which he felt all of them were kind of there in the New Testament. That's one of the problems with his categorization. Because um, Christ of culture is just that, even if you read it from what he's talking about, that's just idolatry. Um, he is for Christ transforming culture. Um, Niebuhr was neo-Orthodox, not really fully liberal, but kind of progressive. He believed, um, I'm not sure of his eschatology, but he probably believed that we could slowly Christianize culture. Um, but anyway, uh, there, there are problems with that. I'll just uh, let you know. There's actually a good follow-up book, not, not by Niebuhr, uh, by... Uh, uh, Carson, D.A. Carson, what's it called? Uh, just, I think it's just Christ and Culture Revisited. Um, he examines that, and some of the insights that I'm giving come from his. Uh, there's a quote later on from uh, Carson's book. So Christ is sovereign, sovereign over all aspects of every culture. That the famous verse in Matthew 28, 18, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Then he gives the great commission, which is go and make disciples. Um, the cultural mandate isn't really there, but it is still implicit in the fact that everything is still under God's sovereignty. Every, everything, every culture, every government, every aspect of every human being. Um, and then in John 17, 2... I would say this is more a Bible survey than a Bible study. And again, feel free to jump in if you want to ask a question or make a comment. John 17, 2, after Jesus, I, unless I made another typo, he looked up heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Verse 2, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. The, the emphasis on those is in on redemption uh, and discipleship. But then in Colossians 1, 
which is one of Paul's very high Christological statements. This is also a well-known. God, uh, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, how this sovereignty is manifested is a much-debated topic, um, and that will lead us eventually to the idea of uh, how Christians are to respond to the culture, larger culture they find themselves in, and the relationship between church and state. So let's say on the one hand you get uh, what's called Christian nationalism, which is a thing. Um, I'm not honestly sure how widespread it is, but it's it's like... It's Constantinian in the sense that it really believes there should be a new Christendom and that society is best served by being explicitly and firmly Christian. But there's even a, there's even a far edge of Christian nationalism, which is theonomy or dominionism, which actually believes in the imposition of Old Testament law on a society. Uh, there are very few people who who hold to that, but there are a few. Um, and then on the far end of the other spectrum, we have the Amish who um, believe that the best response to the frailty and uh, fracturedness and sinfulness of human culture is to completely remove all so- themselves from it. They do occasionally make exceptions. I, I've heard, actually I've read and then had it confirmed, the Amish can't drive cars, but they can accept a ride. They will not use electricity in their own home, but when they sell farm products, milk, cheese, egg, that's legally required to be refrigerated, so they'll do that. So even they have to make some concessions at some times, but not very many. So there's the belief that we should, we should actually completely subsume the culture and make it Christian, and then there's the other extreme, and so we should withdraw ourselves from the culture. So, and, and then there's everything in between. And I'm not here to decide that or actually, my view is a bit eclectic, but I'm not here to push that forward either. So we can debate it at the end if you want to. So I will say this, uh, Christ's sovereignty implies that neutral secularity is an impossible myth. Um, this is the view of a lot of uh, elites, not just politicians, but journalists, intellectuals, uh, I could name names, but I won't, that, that believe somehow that secular, atheistic secu- secularism, that's the neutral objective standpoint by which all other things must be measured, but that's just not the case. Um, secularity in its extreme is a worldview, uh, and it's a form of godlessness. Um, even Progressive secularists who are not necessarily hardcore atheists um, are practicing idolatry, and it's usually a form of worship of the state. Secularism as Christianity is a worldview with a belief system and a mission to influence culture. 
this, this is another very controversial issue. Is, is there anything such as what's called the, the neutral uh, village square or the neutral marketplace of ideas where these things can be ashed out? And my opinion is no, there is no such thing. Everybody comes to these discussions with a worldview. And I believe ours should be as biblical as possible. Okay. Gosh. Okay. <sighs> Sorry. I... <clears throat> there. It's not the technology, it's me. There's something with my electromagnetic field. Um, I literally was responsible for the death of more electronic equipment and technology uh, at Christian Academy than anybody else. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I had a, I, I burned out, not only, I burned out a, a projector bowl. That, that never happens. And then the whole projector, and then a VCR, and a TV, and on and on and on and on and on. And I just figured, I'm getting off some weird resonating magnetic field that somehow destroys electronic equipment. And I have exceptionally dry hands. And if you have that, you don't get the, the whatever resistance and kind of it is when you put your finger on a touch screen. I'm not making this up. I'm just, I just, I was sitting there going like this and I couldn't make that thing go. All right, uh, Christ and culture. Um, Christians have a calling and responsibility to influence culture. Uh, I don't want to take too much time. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and read Jeremiah 29. Um, Matthew 5, I'll just, I'll refer to because you'll, you'll all be familiar with that passage. So Jeremiah 29, uh, Jeremiah is writing to the exiles. And in one sense, we can consider ourselves exiles, though not necessarily punished for our sins and, and cast into a diaspora. This is the reading for Sunday, so don't do a whole sermon on it. It's coming. <laughs> You're serious. Do the abbreviated version. Well, I'm just reading the... It's already mostly written, so... Um, okay, well, I, I'm, I'm not. There's no... I, I said this is just basic stuff, so there's no... See, I told you you would have heard this stuff before, and if you hadn't, you'll hear some tomorrow. Well, are you doing this? So, Jeremiah said... Um, sent a letter to the exiles. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Is that, is that the passage you're hearing? Okay. Increase in number, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the only thing I'm going to say about that, so I'm, seriously, I, I don't have any more to say about it, so I'm not going to steal your thunder, Nick, is, is that this seriously indicates that wherever we find ourselves, no matter... What we think of the culture, um, we we have a calling and responsibility to to hope for its prosperity. Now that means shalom, prosperity and peace. Of course, 
or translations in the Hebrew, a translation of the Hebrew meaning shalom. Matthew 5, 13, 16 is about being salt and light. Uh, you, you are the salt of the world. Now, salt, I don't know how many her sermons you've heard about all the possibility of salt. You know, it's flavoring, it's preservative. Uh, back then it was used to heal wounds. It is, it's an antiseptic, um, or at least it's aseptic. I think it's antiseptic. Um, is there a doctor in the house? Is it? Anyway. It's what they had. Uh, it's what they had. Um, rubbing salt into wounds is, is actually a good thing. I've, I've never heard. Uh, I mean, it stings, but, you know, so is iodine. Um, uh, anyway, um, or the replacement. And, and light, of course. Light is good. Uh, you're a city on a hill. Well, or you put a, put a light on a lampstand. You don't put it under a bushel, bushel. So let your light so shine before men. Were you going to quote that too? That <laughs> they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we have a calling and responsibility to influence the culture towards the biblical vision of shalom. Um, now, part of that is evangel- evangelization. Um, but... We really are called to do, I, I, I almost hate to use the expression, do more than preach the gospel because, you know, everything a church does should be an effect of either preaching the gospel or illustrating it. Uh, but shalom refers to human life before God in holiness, harmony, creativity, and abundant joy with oneself, with others, and with creation in accordance with the way God has made the world. And we don't have to apologize for that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, that's just the definition from the, the wisdom literature class. This includes every aspect of uh, culture and extends to politics. Um, Daniel, I won't read the uh, passages, so Daniel uh, was a, a court advisor in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, um, Matthew 14, is that me? This is interesting, but so, so it might seem odd, but I'm using John the Baptist as an example of someone who spoke truth to power, as they say, and of course, he, he just lost his head over it. Anyway, um... Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. So um, he didn't just randomly say repent and consider this a religious thing. John also was an example. And Paul, before both Felix and then Festus, and, and then even when he got, I, I, we, we don't know historically what could be the result or if he had an actual audience with Caesar, but he did speak to the guards. He was under house arrest the first time he was imprisoned in Rome, and he spoke to those of Caesar's household. A primary way Christians influence a culture 
is by being an alternative culture. Um, Truman, I've read the whole book and I'm trying to remember where he's, I think it's in an upcoming chapter. So that's his phrase. Um, and it's a very apt phrase. Uh, that's not an exact quote, but it's pretty close to what he said. Probably quote it when I get to it. So John thirteen thirty five is the Last Supper. Uh, and Jesus says, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so, again, we're, we're called to do more than just love one another, but if we don't love one another, nothing else we do is going to be anywhere near as effective, if effective at all. And Ephesians 4 puts a little more teeth on this. Um, let's see, where do I start? 1 through 6. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So it's, it's a scandal, uh, and of course, not a surprising one. It was manifest even in the New Testament that the church is divided about so many things. Um, but unity, I mean, it begins on a parish or individual congregation level, and it'd be something that we should focus on and emphasize. Um, but that's Nick's job, so I'll just I'll go on from there. Right? <laughs> Christ and culture. I love this illustration. This is the culture of social media. Has anybody seen the seven deadly sins of social media? All I can remember is uh, lust was tender. Twitter was anger. That is a perfect fit. Um, uh, Facebook was envy. Um, I'm not sure the rest of them. But um, social media gets blamed for a lot of things, and, and I, I think it, if you're obsessed with it in the wrong way, it can be harmful. But, of course, it's just, it's just us. You know, it's us doing things we really want to do but would, don't, don't, don't have the courage to do face-to-face. You know, they talk about alcohol as being liquid courage. Social media is it's electronic courage. Um, Christians, at the same time that we seek to be influenced, we seek to influence culture, we should avoid being influenced by the negative aspects of the culture in which they live. Now, we're all going to be consumers of culture at at some point, I mean, including popular culture, and not all of it's bad, Um, but, and, and I'll actually get to a one principle of discernment close to the end here, which is coming up soon. Uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, uh, well, verse 2, uh, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And in Ephesians chapter 5, again, that unwraps that a little more. There we go. 
Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. I won't read the whole thing. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. And people talk about Christians in general, and Paul in particular, being obsessed with sex. Why does he talk about sex, sex, sex all because the culture wants to talk about sex, sex, sex all the time in a highly negative way. So we have to counter that in a highly positive way. But he also says, or of any kind, not a hint of sexual morality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because they're the, they are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, uh, obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking. Don't laugh. I mean, don't don't not laugh, but... You know, there are such things as crude humor, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Um, And there are other verses that point to that, too, about avoiding negative influences. And all parents who have uh, kids these days uh, know that this is something that has to be dealt with, but adults do, too. Um, Anyway. Um. This is the last thing to do with with culture, and then we'll get to church and state. Uh, A useful guideline for Christians discerning what is or is not positive and good in cultural expression is Philippians 4.8. It's a a guideline. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, uh, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And, and they're, I admit, it's mainly the older pop culture. Um, I do listen to older, older stations. So there's the Beatles song came on, She Loves You, Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Well, that's okay, you know. What could be wrong? With a love like that, you know, it can't be bad. <laughs> she said you heard her so. She almost lost her mind. But now she says she knows you're not the hurting kind. So that's a, that's a somewhat positive message. And then there's, there's a, I almost don't want to introduce the word, but there is such thing as popular culture and, and high culture, you know, classical music, um, uh, fine arts, things like that. Um, but even that, there's, there's better and worse in that. So let's, uh, let's talk about everybody's favorite subject when it comes to Scripture and society, church and state. Um, so God instituted governments among men. Um, I'm not an uh, adherent to uh, Locke's social contract theory, which also goes back to Rousseau, but I think he stole it from Locke. Uh, I have to do a dissertation about that, but... Um, uh, Right after the flood, uh, law was instituted, and the first law was uh, don't kill people, because if you kill people, you yourself would be killed. He who shed man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. And so law um, and the, the structure within which the law is given and and enforce, that is government, is for the purpose of establishing a peaceful order, restraining evil, and executing justice. 
So in Romans 13, 1 through 7, this is one of the most famous passages on government. Paul says, and before I get to it, remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to Romans in Rome during the reign of Nero. Uh, Nero, who would eventually, um, th- this, is, this is according to a Roman historian, an ancient Roman historian, that Nero, to punish Christians uh, and to light up his garden, stuck them up on poles, smeared them with tar, and set them on fire. Um, one of the ancient... I can't remember if it was Suetonius or Tacitus. That's, that's from one of the ancient Roman historians. So Paul says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible judgment, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Peter says a, a similar thing, shorter, but he talks about submission to the authorities. So I'll say all things being equal, so you know there's going to be uh, a nuanced exception clause to this, we are to be as good, good a citizens as we possibly can. We don't disobey laws just because we can. Um, or even if we disagree with them. Uh, Nobody likes to pay taxes. Um, And I personally would avoid, I avoid legally paying any taxes that I could possibly pay, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel guilty about it either. Um, But I do pay my taxes. Um, So we should submit to the governing authorities. However, such submission has its limits. Uh, Where the state commands Christians to do something God forbids, um, such as bake a cake that celebrates a same-sex marriage, if your conscience bothers you enough about that, which I believe it should, or forbid something God commands, like the assembling of yourselves together regularly. Christians must clash with the state and suffer the consequences. Uh, 
Uh, that's from D.A. Carson's book, um, Christ and Culture Revisited. And Acts 4, 18 20 is that episode where Peter and the disciples were called before the Sanhedrin and told to stop preaching in the name of Christ. And the upshot of it was, um, they said, well, what is it better, to obey you or to obey God? And they flogged him and let him go, and they were all actually rejoicing because they were able to suffer for the name of Christ. And so... This, too, is an area of great controversy. You know, at what point are we to say submission to the government does not necessarily mean obedience to the government? Because um, though Peter and some of the disciples did not, they submitted to the government, in this case the Sanhedrin, but they did not obey it. There's a difference. So you could call that uh, religious civil disobedience, which is something, again, we could discuss if you want. Um, church and state. Okay, there, that famous phrase. The meaning and application of the principle of the separation between church and state are controversial. But both the First Amendment to the Constitution and Thomas Jefferson's reference, which, let me read. Well, you can read the, that's the uh, religion statement, the uh, Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise uh, thereof. And there's also the right of free speech the right of people lawfully to assemble, et cetera, et cetera, all part of the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights. And this is what Jefferson wrote. He wrote in response to a letter from the Danbury Baptist Association, and some of you who have studied law probably know this. So he says uh, he thanks them for their prayers, um, talks about discharging his duties with fidelity, um, and then he says, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature, legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. So the separation between church and state and the wall of separation didn't actually occur in the Constitution. It's Jefferson's interpretation of the Constitution. Whether he's correct or not, I don't know. But his terminology, a wall of separation, has been fraught with difficulties ever since. Adhering to this expression of the supreme will of the nation in behalf of the rights of conscience, I shall see with sincere satisfaction the progress of those sentiments which tend to restore to man all his natural rights, convinced he has no natural right in opposition to his social duties. 
I reciprocate your kind prayers, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing in that statement from Jefferson that indicates an interpretation of the wall of separation as in and, and the establishment and the free exercise clause that indicate that religion should be an entirely private matter, that you, you should never discuss it uh, in any political situation. It had, should have no influence in government. Um, and we, it doesn't, he didn't intend to completely secularize the state. At the time, it was understood that it wasn't actually forbidding the establishment of, of religion in a state because there were established state religions in some New England states and I think in Virginia, although that's not the case anymore. Um, nor was it to restrict Christians from influencing government and politics, as I think the Bible indicates too. Now, Jefferson was a deist, but um, I think most people who were interested in religious freedom at the time uh, voted for him. This was after he was elected president. And so uh, I think... Again, I'm not an expert on constitutional law. I think for the most part, um, there's been some sway one way or the other, but the court tends to side with that view, which I just stated, at least the ones who were so-called originalists. But anyway, uh, that's what I got to say. Um, Does anybody have any questions or comments or... Uh, and the reason I bring it up now is because when we get to the last chapter, um, well, actually, Truman will bring up some things related to politics along the way, but when we get to the last chapter, he'll be discussing how Christians are to respond to this. Um, you know, and, and one of them is not to become Amish as far as Truman is concerned. Um, Though becoming a Christian enclave is is uh, always one of the possibilities that people throw out. Uh, next week we're 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 on uh, chapter is it five or six? It's it's plastic people and liquid world. Okay. Yeah, oh, chapter six. We've done chapter five. Haven't we? Yeah. Right. Yeah, chapter six. Plastic people, liquid world. So, Father, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to meet in your name without uh, government strictures or without fear um, at the present time. Help us uh, in whatever cultural place we find ourselves in to be faithful. but also to uh, love one another as you have loved us and to love, um, love the world as Christ loved it without necessarily becoming part of it. Um, thank you for this pleasant evening and thank you for this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.